Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. It's a lot going on. Steny Hoyer, who is the number two Democrat in the U.S. House of Representatives, he's the Democratic House whip. He's the one who runs around and pulls votes together and basically manages the herd, right? He's the, he's the cat herder on behalf of Nancy Pelosi. Steny Hoyer just said what Donald Trump is doing, quote, borders on treason, end quote, which is about as strong as you can get. You know, I mean, you're going to accuse somebody of a crime. You don't, well, you could come right out and say this is treasonous behavior, but saying it borders on, that's really, really strong language for a member of Congress, particularly a member in senior leadership. That is to the best of my mind, unprecedented. And yeah, it does border on treason. In fact, I think it is at the very least sedition and at the most treason. And meanwhile, Donald Trump's main strategy to hang on to power and become America's first actual dictator president has shifted away from the strategy of challenging vote counts, although he's continuing to do that. But, you know, that's really the window dressing. That's the excuse Latest public opinion poll, 80% of Republicans think that Democrats stole the election from Trump. This is the effect of the president of the United States telling lies dozens of times a day on Twitter, hundreds of thousands of times a day on Facebook, and God only knows on television and radio. And then the entire 1500 radio station, you know, hundreds of television station entire Fox News network, billionaire, largely owned and controlled, right-wing media machine, echoing exactly what he's saying. So now his strategy is moving from trying to suppress the vote or not have the vote counted or disqualify voters. I mean, as I said, they're continuing to try and do all that stuff, but his strategy now is shifting to, well, let's just have some of the swing states' legislatures say, You know, there's so much controversy around this. Keep in mind the controversy is entirely coming out of Donald Trump's mouth. There's so much controversy about this, we really can't certify our electors. So why don't we just let the House of Representatives decide who's president? After all, the Constitution provides for that. It's right there in the 12th Amendment. And he's dead serious about this. And on top of that, he figures that if he can't even pull that off and stay in office... He's got 80% of the Republican donors now, 
And they'll continue to follow him. They'll provide him with a base. They'll come to his rallies. They'll love him. They'll send him money, which he desperately needs. I mean, he's raising millions of dollars a day right now from the poor suckers who support him. And now the latest, the 2020 Republican scam, gives Donald Trump a small chance to hold on to the presidency. Yes, it's still there. Palmer and Hartman, these two county folks in Michigan, have filed now an affidavit saying, no, we want to go back and say you can't certify the vote in Detroit. You can't count the votes of black people in Michigan. And Trump actually reached out and called these people and talked with them. And now they're like, oh, yeah, let's let's uh, stage a coup. And he's clearly doing the same thing in other swing states trying to throw this into the 12th Amendment and and the House, something that I've been talking about in this program for over a year now. And I think, you know, the Democrats are just now seriously paying attention to. But in the process of permanently damaging American democracy, shredding the credibility of our electoral system, which, you know, may have a, a silver lining if the outcome of this is that a Biden presidency and an activist Congress, this, you know, particularly if we can win these two races in Georgia, and if you're not doing something right now to help Ralph Warnock and John Ossoff, or Raphael Warnock, excuse me, and John Ossoff down in Georgia win those elections, do go for it. There are so many ways to participate. The biggest one, of course, just being kick, kick 50 bucks or 10 bucks or, you know, 500 bucks or whatever you can afford in their direction. And only four of McConnell's Republican members have even acknowledged that Joe Biden won the election. Which suggests that the rest of them are, you know, getting ready for Trump to do a real power grab and say, yes, we will be senators in the first American dictatorship. You know, if you're represented by Republicans at the state or federal level, they need to hear from you now. And you need to tell them this is not America. Meanwhile, Kelly Loeffler, the uh, senator from Georgia who is uh, running against uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock, who is a, uh, right now he's the pastor of the church that Martin Luther King was the pastor of. He's a great guy. Um, I encourage you to look for YouTubes or interviews of uh, Reverend Warnock. He, He is so clear in how he lays out his message. I mean, it's just bullet point, bullet point, bullet. He, 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 every Democrat in America should take communications lessons from Reverend Warnock. Of course, being, being the pastor of you know, one of the most prestigious churches in America probably gave him a lot of training for that. But uh, I'm, I'm guessing there's a heck of a lot of native talent there as well. This guy is good. So uh, Kelly Loeffler, who uh, he's running against, Uh, She says uh, to Fox News that liberal dark money is coming into uh, Warnock's campaign. And from the Capitol building, she's in the Capitol building being interviewed by Fox News. She says on Fox News, quote, the guy says, well, what can people do about all this dark money coming into Warnock's campaign? And she says, they can visit KellyForSenate.com and chip in five or ten bucks and get involved. Now, that is a violation of the law, not to mention Senate rules. The Senate rules say, and I quote, Senate members and staff may not receive or solicit campaign contributions in any federal building. 
The ethics rules say Senate employees are free to engage in campaign activity, um, provided they do so on their own time outside of Senate space and without using Senate resources. This is also a violation of the Hatch Act, which makes it a federal crime to do politicking in federal property. So uh, that's Kelly Loeffler. And then David Perdue, he was put into the Senate subcommittee that has jurisdiction over the U.S. Navy. Just before he got that job, when he knew he was going to get it, but before it was official, he bought a whole bunch of stock in this company, BWX Technologies, that you and I have never heard of. What does this company make? They make stuff for submarines for the Navy. Then Purdue gets put on the committee that oversees spending on submarines for the Navy and passes legislation that pours millions of dollars, much, much, much money into maybe billions into BWX technology. Suddenly, David Purdue's stock goes through the roof. He sells the stock, takes his profit. He is running against John Ossoff in Georgia. Warnock and Ossoff and Leffler, actually, Kelly Leffler, somebody sent me a note saying you're mispronouncing your name. My apologies. I'll try to get it right. But in any case, Warnock and Ossoff, these guys need your help. Check them out, Google them, track them down, whatever you can do. However you can help, there are campaigns to do uh, uh, phone calls for them, postcards for them, send them money, help them advertise, promote them on Facebook, whatever it takes. Tom Hartman program. Meanwhile, Republicans say they're not saying out loud that uh, Joe Biden is the president because they're afraid that Trump might do something dangerous. This is nuts. You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag your it. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you and uh, Sam in Dunwoody, Georgia. Hey, Sam, what's on your mind today? I'm a retired New York City police officer, and I'm wondering why Rudy is being portrayed as this great America's mayor, when in fact, to become elected, he used all these dirty tricks against David Bankers along with the New York City PBA. Yeah. During the Bed-Stuy riots, he... Uh, Try to divide that community by falsely promoting that David Dinkins was running a program against the Jewish uh, members of that community. And uh, even after, with the World Trade Center, after the first bombing attempt on the World Trade Center, he was advised to put the communication center in an outer borough, which he refused to do. He placed it back in the World Trade Center. He caused untold numbers of deaths after 9-11, during that 9-11 bombing. But it's still being portrayed as this great America's mayor. Yeah. A friend of mine in New York City uh, had a small business there selling cigarette papers and stuff like that, you know, bongs and whatnot. And Rudy Giuliani had a choice. He could go after the heroin dealers, you know, after the Italian mafia. He could go after the cocaine dealers, the Colombian mafia. Or he could go after the porn shops and the head shops. And he chose the latter. And... 
<laughs> you know, and this is when he was district attorney, right? He basically declared war on businesses in New York City rather than declaring war on the mob. Rudy Giuliani has always been corrupt. He was corrupt when he was a prosecutor. He was corrupt when he was mayor. And Sam, I think you did a really, really good job of, of nailing those things down. And, and frankly, he's corrupt now that he's pretending to be a lawyer for Donald Trump. Sam, spot on. Thank you. Thank you for the call. Mike in Kane, Virginia. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hi, Tom. I'd like to bring up a point that I hope that I'm not the only one that's ever thought about this. But what would happen if Donald Trump, and you just brought this up just a second ago, in preparation for the Michigan and Wisconsin delegates not going his way, what would happen if he says, you know what, I am going to uh, drop a nuke unless you completely do not let me get convicted for any crime, state, local, or federal. Drop a nuke where? In Iran. I think, Mike, and again, this is purely conjecture on my part. Let me make it very clear. I have no evidence for this. This is just my opinion. My guess is that right now the conversation that's going on between the Republicans who are still who still haven't spoken out, which in the Senate, that would be 48 Republicans um, who are still, you know, theoretically behind Trump, you know, excluding Ben Sass and Mitt Romney, the only two who have said, yes, Joe Biden won, that the negotiation that's going on right now between Mitch McConnell and others in the Republican Party and Donald Trump is how does he get a pardon? How does he get immunity? What kind of deal can he cut? Is there anything that they can do to help him stay out of jail? I'm guessing that that's going to be his next step. Right now, he's trying to steal the election. It's not going to work, yep. and it's doing incredible damage to America, and, and the Republicans are figuring that out. And the next step is going to be deal cutting. He is a, you know, he, he brags about being, you know, this great deal yeah. cutter. And so, <laughs> right. you know, we'll see. We'll see. But I'm, I'm, I'm expecting that there's going to be some sort of a Richard Nixon kind of thing. And this is what I've been saying for a long time. I think a month, be, you know, probably at Christmas time, he's going to go down to Mar-a-Lago and not come back. And he may even resign a few weeks before the, uh, the inauguration so that Mike Pence can pardon him and his family. In particular, you know, the Trump crime family, his kids and his son-in-law. Mike, thanks for the call. John in Seattle listening on KBCS. Hey, John, what's up? Yeah, what's Tom, like you, I was born in Michigan. My grandfather mm-hmm. was a state senator, in fact, and so I feel very, very strongly about this. And, you know, I think we should change our terminology. Instead of saying Trump is pressuring or Trump is negotiating with these people, we should just say out what, outright what it is. is he's, he's trying to bribe them. And with his power of the presidency, he can, he can offer them head of a commission, some monument naming commission or ambassador to Grenada or something like that. And, I think we oh, you're talking that. about like these state board of canvassers, canvassers. guys the from canvassers. Michigan, or the legislators? Yeah, yeah. any of those folks. He's got to he's got to sure. be doing something like that because that's the one thing he's. Oh got yeah, he's totally transactional. Doing. I agree. And so, so we should just start saying, "Hey, he's that the, the Trump is bribing them." But you know, one other thing that, that comes to mind with all that is, if this were any sort of illegal, like a trial or something like that. This would be witness tampering. This would be jury tampering. Mm-hmm. And so there, there must be some sort of laws against that. And if there aren't, we damn well better get those started soon in states, federal, yeah. whatever. But Yeah, anyway, I'm completely that, that, with you, John. And really the question that, that should be being asked, and I need to probably ask it more frequently on this program, is what kind of bribes 
What are the bribes that Trump is offering to these Republican officials who are responsible for certifying the election in these various states? Because we know, you know, he tried to bribe the president of Ukraine. He begged the president of China to help him out. He had some kind of deal going with the president of Russia back in 2016. This is what he does. He, he, pay, he essentially pays people off. Yeah, I'm totally with you. It's, it's, uh, it's terrible. Thank you for the call. Michael in New York City. Hey, Michael, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? The National Popular Vote Interstate Dot com. Compact. Yeah. According to Wikipedia, it's been enacted so that there are currently uh, 196 electoral votes that could be awarded to whoever wins the popular vote. And, and there are right. pending states, 98 electoral votes. It seems to me, okay, that basically brings it out. Oh, 98 electoral votes. I thought it was 96 last time I heard. So that's basically 254. I'm wondering if we couldn't just, if it wouldn't be possible just for one more state, say Georgia, it's at nationalpopularvote.com. All the information's over at that website. Do not go to the .org. .org. That's, been, that's been grabbed by somebody who throws you know, crap at your uh, browser. But nationalpopularvote.com is the website. But I think it's really close. Um, now, the, the, pending states, the pending states might actually be states that won't go for it. Ohio, Pennsylvania's pending. Okay, South Carolina is pending. Uh, Texas is pending. I mean, all all of those states have Republican legislatures, so it's extremely unlikely at the moment. But if if we were to really start pouring time, money and energy into these state legislative races strategically, Mm -hmm. you know, pick the six states that it's going to take to turn this into, you know, to get the national uh, popular vote compact ratified and do that. Then the only obstacle is that the Republicans have already filed a lawsuit with the Supreme Court saying that the national popular vote uh, compact, if these states sign it, is unconstitutional. (laughs) I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up, Michael. That's that's the way to do it. They're going to push for legislation soon that will make any uh, votes for Democrats unconstitutional. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what they've been doing for a long, long time. I mean, first it was how many jelly beans are in that jar and please recite the Constitution backwards. And then it was, you know, you know, the Operation Eagle Eye with William Rehnquist and, you know, intimidating voters in the 60s. And the Democrats got a restraining order against that. And then in the 80s, Karl Rove started this whole caging thing, you know, send out postcards into Democratic neighborhoods. And if they don't come back, you know, uh, with a checkmark, yes, I'm a registered voter, you know, knock them off the voting rolls. The Democrats got a restraining order against that, which only expired three years ago. And and now, you know, it's... So what? what are the chances that the Voting Rights Act could be... Uh restored if we get it passed the house it has been sitting in the senate for 346 days mitch mcconnell will not consider it and that's the problem mitch mcconnell is always the problem moscow we'll be right back quick math the less your business spends on operations on multiple systems on delivering your product or service the more margin you have and the more money you keep NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. 
With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Legacy of Secrecy, The Long Shadow of the JFK Assassination by Lamar Waldron and me. This is from the introduction. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963, triggered cover-ups by officials that continue to negatively impact American politics, life, and foreign policy. Legacy of Secrecy details those cover-ups and hidden investigations, many for the first time, including the reasons they were carried out under such intense secrecy. Most were spawned by John and Robert Kennedy's top-secret 1963 plan to stage a coup against Fidel Castro, a plan so highly classified that it only started to be exposed in 2005 and is fully, finally, revealed in this book. Their own confessions now show that three mafia bosses, Carlos Marcello, Santo Traficante, and Johnny Roselli, were behind JFK's assassination. They used parts of the secret coup plan to kill JFK in a way that forced Attorney General Robert Kennedy, President Lyndon B. Johnson, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, and high CIA official Richard Helms to withhold critical information not only from the public and the press, but also from each other and sometimes their own investigators. It's important to keep in mind that JFK was murdered just a year after the tense nuclear standoff during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The main goals of U.S. officials were to prevent a nuclear confrontation with the Soviets and to protect JFK's ally high up in the Cuban government. Commander Juan Almeida, head of the Cuban army in 1963, still listed as Cuba's number three official today. While U.S. leaders have managed to prevent a confrontation with Russia and preserve a critical ally in the Cuban government, This limited the investigation into JFK's murder, allowing the three mafia chiefs and their associates to remain free. As a result, the long shadow of secrecy surrounding both JFK's murder and the coup plan set the stage for the murder of Martin Luther King, ultimately driving two presidents from office and bringing about the murders of five congressional witnesses in the mid-1970s. Legacy of Secrecy breaks important new ground in key areas, detailing for the first time Louisiana Godfather Carlos Marcello's clear confession to ordering JFK's assassination. Marcello's criminal empire ranged from Dallas to Memphis, and previously secret files at the National Archives have shown that he made this confession in 1985 to an FBI informant ruled credible by a federal judge as part of a secret FBI undercover sting operation named Camtex. Exposed here for the first time, Camtex yielded Marcello's admission that he'd met Lee Harvey Oswald and set Jack Ruby up in business in Dallas. The operation also generated hundreds of hours of heretofore secret prison audio tapes of Marcello discussing his crimes, recorded using the FBI informant's bugged transistor radio. Yet the FBI and Justice Department withheld most of that information from the public and Congress for years 
until its revelation in this book. Carlos Marcello wasn't the only mob boss who confessed his involvement in JFK's murder to a trusted associate. Legacy also uncovers important new information about Marcello's partners in JFK's assassination, Tampa godfather Santos Traficanti and Johnny Roselli, the Chicago Mafia's man in Las Vegas and Hollywood. Shortly before their deaths, both mobsters admitted their roles in JFK's murder to their attorneys. Two of their associates with documented ties to the secret JFK Almaheda coup plan likewise confessed. Using exclusive new information supported by FBI files apparently withheld from Congress, this book names two of the Georgia men who paid James Earl Ray to kill the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, white supremacist Joseph Miltier and Hugh R. Spake. Miltier, who had been involved in Marcello's murder of JFK, was part of a small clique of racists in Atlanta who used Marcello to broker the contract to murder Dr. King. We document James Earl Ray's ties to Marcello's heroin swing smuggling operation and long overlooked evidence in FBI files linking Ray to Marcello's associate, Johnny Roselli. Finally, this book explains why Ray, while fleeing to Canada the day after killing Dr. King in Memphis, made a 400-plus mile detour south to Atlanta, where he contacted Spake to get help from Miltier. In 1979, the last congressional committee to investigate the murders of JFK and Dr. King, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, concluded, quote, that Traficante, like Marcello, had the motive, means, and opportunity to assassinate President Kennedy, end of quote from the congressional report. The HSCA had been created in the wake of Roselli's sensational murder, but the HSCA was unable to establish direct evidence of Marcello's complicity. And the same was true for Traficanti and Roselli, because the CIA, FBI, and other federal agencies withheld so many relevant files. The HSCA, headed by civil rights figure Louis Stokes, also concluded there was a likelihood of conspiracy in the assassination of Dr. King, and that financial gain was James Earl Ray's primary motivation. But they were unable to determine who had paid Ray or how the conspiracy had worked because the FBI and other agencies had hid critical files. With the help of more than two dozen associates of John and Robert Kennedy, backed up by thousands of recently released documents at the National Archives, many of which are quoted here for the first time, Legacy tells the full story denied to Congress and the American people, Legacy of Secrecy. Tom Harbin here with you, fair and only slightly unbalanced, indeed. Virgie in Jackson, Tennessee, what's on your mind today? I was trying to get you, and I saw Rudy Giuliani on Newsmax, and he's talking about the election, and they're not happy about the recount. And he said during the recount, they got the same people. So that's what a recount is, not to erase the ballot and put some mess, throw the ballots away. And, he, and I, I didn't listen at all of but I'm just listening to seeing how they're just trying everything they can to steal this election. And yeah. I just, oh, and, and 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 this is a huge throw the spaghetti against the wall. You know, throw the throw everything in the dining you know on the dining room plates against the wall and see what sticks. And you know, you end up with a dirty, really dirty wall, and we're ending up with a really dirty democracy. Absolutely right. He's not happy about the recount, but in Philadelphia, and he was just having a tantrum on the, the little I saw when I was. Turned to, when I was getting, you know, flipping the channel, he was having a really having a tantrum on Newsmax. I never listened to Newsmax, uh, see what they were talking. I just happened to see him, and I just want to see what he was talking about. So this is 
uh, and they're not having any shame trying to take the election. And they, they look like they could no, sing. Quite- I've never seen before an election when so wants so much joy in the street when Mr. Biden won the election. Yeah. Because we yeah. have never and, seen and, it. Even when, I mean, all yeah, the United States people was in the street just just joy. So they they knew they lost the election. And then and these people so so I, I don't understand why they keep on. They say some eighty percent of the Republican Trump is there. trying to crank this up, Virgie. There, there's you're, you're absolutely right. Eighty percent of uh, Republicans say now you know yeah it was stolen by the Democrats. And Virgie, thank you, thank you for pointing it all that out. But number one, Donald Trump is hoping that through some little loophole or squeezy skeezy way, like he has done his whole life with business after business after business, and most of them have failed. But, you know, some of his real estate deals at the last minute, he gets bailed out by a criminal who wants to launder money from the Philippines or a criminal who wants to launder money from Russia or a criminal who wants to launder money out of Cyprus. I mean, you know, he always, not always, but he's often gotten bailed out at the last minute. He's hoping for that now, number one. But he knows that the chances of that are 10% or less. So number two, if he can crank up enough outrage and get enough Republicans, and keep in mind that's, you know, a third of America, if he can get enough of these people thinking that he actually did win the election and it was actually stolen from him by Democrats, those people will continue to support him politically. They'll continue to come to his rallies. They will continue to send him money. And now we discover that the Trump app, which two and a half million people have downloaded, snatches all of their contacts so that you know, they, they can, they got two and a half million people's contacts. If each person has a hundred contacts, that's, that's, uh, you know, 200 million names and address and email addresses and information that they've got. Plus the Trump app tracks you everywhere you go. Plus the Trump app monitors all the social media you participate in. So they're, they basically, if you put that Trump app on your phone, Trump knows everything about you. And that's what he's getting ready for. He's getting ready. His next grift, Donald Trump has figured out he can make more money in politics than in real estate. And that's where he's going to stay. And now Don Jr. is on his way down to Georgia to audition for 2024. Don, Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Don, what's up? Just wanted to remind us that the governors, handful of governors in, in a few states that don't have to abide by the popular vote can cast their electoral votes to whoever they want. And I think that... Yeah, it's not the governors, it's the state legislatures. That yes. That's going to be his Hail Mary pass, his last opportunity. Once he exhausts all of these lawsuits, he's going to depend on those governors to give them their electoral votes. It's another lawsuit just because yeah. of that. We need to, we need yeah, to get no, I, I absolutely agree. This is his plan D or E or F is get the state legislatures in three or four critical swing states to flip their votes yeah. from Biden to Trump. And he's going to, you yeah. know, he's going to try and pull it off in Pennsylvania. He's going to try and pull it off in Michigan. He's going to try and pull it off in Arizona and Georgia. and Georgia. Yeah, thank you. And if he does pull it off, yeah, he could, he could stay in the White House. And that would be basically the end of, of the American experiment, in my mind. But Don, thank you for the call. Spot on. Uh, Louisa in Roseville, California. Hey, Louisa, what's up? Good morning, Tom. I hope you're well. I am, so far. Wonderful. I've got two points I'd like to talk to you about today, kind of briefly. We have just one minute, so pick one. 
Oh, okay. Uh, last week I called about the illegal ballot drop-off boxes here in California that Republicans mm-hmm. place in three counties. And I did a follow-up call to the Secretary of State, and I talked to a gentleman there who said that he thought that almost all of them had been picked up by the Secretary of State office and mm-hmm. disposed of, but we don't know whether all of them had been. But also the voters who would drop their ballots off there had all been instructed how to resubmit their ballots. So at least we know that that was taken Resubmit? Care of. You mean the phony ballot boxes that the Republicans put out were not, they didn't take the ballots to the secretary, you know, to be counted? Oh, yeah. I don't know if that's what happened, but from what this gentleman said is it that they informed all of the voters who had dropped off their ballots in those boxes how to resubmit their ballots. So that's what I was that's told. That's amazing. That's amazing. Louisa, if you learn anything more, give us a show. Would you? That, this is a story that's worth keeping keeping track of. What happened to the ballots in those phony ballot boxes that the Republicans put out? It's amazing. Here on the Tom Hartman program, we'll be back with more of your calls on whatever may be on your mind today, whatever topic you want to talk about: pigeons, flying saucers, the weather, <laughs> Trump treason. Our video for the day that's available over at TomHartman.com is talking about how the Donald Trump presidency has been fundamentally destructive, not just to the United States, not just to our political norms, not just to our body politic, not just to the institutions of the presidency and our governance in general, his disrespect of judges, his disrespect of Congress, his pushing the boundaries of what an Article II office can do. But it's also destructive around the world because of the things that he's not doing, that aren't getting attended to. We've got part, major parts of the world that are spiraling into chaos that could, any, several of them could trigger World War III. And instead, he's sitting there live tweeting Fox News, literally, every morning and every evening. Check it out. It's available over at TomHartman.com. And welcome back to Anything Goes Friday here on the Tom Hartman Program. Jessica in Chicago. Hey, Jessica, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. By Trump summoning the Michigan certifiers to the White House to change their verifications again, um, Michigan State, he is breaking the law, and so are they, by interfering with an election. And also to one of your previous callers from Georgia. Well, hang on just a second, Jessica. Let me, let me just respond to this first. Sure. He's not bringing the Board of Canvassers people to the White House. He called them and pitched them. And I agree with you. That is election interference, and that may well be a felony. But the people that he's flying to D.C. are the Speaker of the Michigan House of Representatives and the Senate Majority Leader for the Michigan Senate, the two senior Republican elected officials in the state. And his plan with that is to ignore the vote count. It doesn't matter who won. The law, the Constitution says, and and this was reaffirmed, by the way, in the Bush v. Gore decision in 2000, because the Florida legislature had prepared and had on the floor, they just never ultimately never voted on it, but they had on the floor of, of of the House of Representatives in Florida a piece of legislation that would have had the recount given the vote, given the, uh, the vote to Al Gore. Uh, the recount that got stopped, the one that was ordered by the Florida Supreme Court, had that recount actually happened and had it gone to Al Gore, they were going to pass a law in Florida saying that, which they can do under the Constitution, saying that all of the electoral votes for Florida went to George Bush anyway. 
So that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get the Michigan state legislature to pass a law that says for this election, we are going to ignore the old law that says that whoever gets the most votes in Michigan gets the electoral votes of Michigan. And we're going to pass this new law that says we don't have enough confidence in the process here. or That'll be the fig leaf. So therefore, we're going to award the votes to Donald Trump. So that's what's going on there. Just, right. just to clarify, anyhow, Jessica, uh, what about Georgia? Georgia, I have worse news for. I hope that um, the woman is listening that called in earlier. The Republican State House there is changing the rules on the mail-in ballots in Georgia. Now you have to have proof of an ID with your mail-in ballot, which is going to be so hard for state IDs during COVID for those who don't have licenses. And they know that wealthy Republicans are fine with their IDs. So they know what they're doing. They're cheating. and well, they're- it, it, it goes beyond that, Jessica. If you're going to have to send a copy of your driver's license along with your ballot, how many people have copy machines in their homes or printers and scanners in their homes? I have one because I do this show and I write books. I'm Mm -hmm. guessing probably most people who are middle class, upper middle class and very wealthy pretty much all have, you know, a home printer and a home scanner or something like that. They could do they could do that easily. I'm guessing people who earn less than 30, 40, 50 thousand dollars a year at the most probably don't have a scanner and a printer at home and they won't be able to to make it and and nobody has copy machines anymore and so they're not going to be able to make a copy of the driver's license to include in their ballot so they would get excluded um i I, I read the story about that a couple days ago jessica i my uh, my read of it was that this was an attempt but that it probably would not pass Do do you know something more recent than that um, I just heard that today, but the thing is, um, I, I think that's too personal of information to have all those licenses out there too. I don't. I think oh, yeah. um, Democrats have to protest that. Oh yeah, and it's also, an invitation to uh, to identity theft. Yes. Yeah. And also. Yeah. There are already 70,000 mail-in applications going out already, the ballots. So people are wanting to vote there. And then I want to say, last thing, I'm donating $200 to fairfight.com. And we're writing 300 postcards to Indivisible. And I think I'm going to put on all those postcards. They're wanting verification. And... I don't know. Maybe they have to wear hazmat suits and go vote. I don't, I don't know what's up. This is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Jessica, what it's revealing is that the Republican Party does not believe in democracy. It's, you know, I mean, this is probably one of the reasons why Joe McCarthy back in the 1950s said, don't ever actually use the name of the Democratic Party. Don't call it the Democratic Party. That sounds democratic. And people love democracy. That sounds too nice. Instead, call it the Democrat Party with the emphasis on the rat. And, mm-hmm. and you know, Fox News has taken this to heart. Most of the Republicans have taken this to heart. Um, occasionally, you're, you'll hear a Republican refer to his Democratic colleagues or the Democratic Party, but mostly it's the Democrat Party. They're all still dancing to Joe McCarthy's tune. And it just shows with disgust, it shows us what the Republicans think of the United States of America. They don't give a damn. They just, they just want to do whatever their billionaire donors, the people who own them, tell them to do. Joan in Arveda, California. Hey, Joan, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. I have turned 65 and I need to sign up for Medicare, even though I'll be working till I'm 70. I've heard people on your program, including yourself, saying that Advantage is a scam. And from my research, I think 
I need to sign up for A and B and a good Medigap policy. But when I heard you say anything goes, I thought I'm going to call Tom and ask him. Well, you're absolutely right. In fact, the New York Times just a few weeks ago had an article about a fellow who uh, had uh, a Medigap or had a, a, Med- a Medicare Advantage plan. Um, these are not actually Medicare. The, you know, and I know Joe Namath and, and Danny Glover are on TV pitching them. These programs are a scam. Right. And if you buy one of these programs, the big problem is you can't go back to normal Medicare easily. Um, this guy had uh, okay. uh, bladder cancer and he needed to get a doctor who was a specialist in bladder cancer. And there was none available in the network that his Medicare Advantage program covered. And so he tried to go back to normal Medicare because, you know, they, pretty much everybody takes that. And Medicare would take him back. But he couldn't get a Medigap provider because, the, you know, it, when, when you turn 65 and you get Medicare, which covers 80 percent of your costs, and then you get a Medigap plan that fills in the remaining 20 percent, they cannot turn you down regardless of your, your health if you have preexisting conditions and things like that. But if you don't do it when you're 65, if you don't initially sign up for a Medigap program like that, and instead you go with Medicare Advantage, when you discover that your Medicare Advantage is not going to pay for everything and they're basically going to screw you um, and you try to go back on Medicare, Medicare will take you. But the Medigap plan people will look at your health history and they'll decide whether they're going to take you or not. And this guy could not get a Medigap uh, coverage plan. That's the big gotcha. The line that they used in the New York Times was basically once you choose Medicare Advantage, it's irrevocable. These parasites have got you for the rest of your life and they will milk you dry. And yeah, it sounds great. Oh, dental coverage. Oh, vision coverage. Oh, no premiums. Well, how do they afford to do that? Plus, they're spending 100 million bucks a day on television advertising. They do that by refusing using care to people, you know, by saying, no, I'm not going to pay for that procedure. You know, I think that there are some good Medigap programs out there. I stay as far away from United Healthcare as I can just because they have such a terrible reputation and they've been such bad actors over the mm-hmm. years. And two of right. their CEOs took over a billion dollars out of the company. But, mm-hmm. you know, that said, look for companies that have the word in, when you're looking for insurance, look for insurance companies that have the word mutual in their name. The oldest mutual insurance company in North America was started by Ben Franklin in 1757. And and what a mutual insurance company is, is it's like a credit union. If you put your money in a Hmm. bank, the bank is owned by its stockholders. And if the bank shows a profit, the stockholders get a dividend. If you put your money in a credit union, the credit union is owned by the people who put their money in there. You become a member of the credit union. You can even run for president of the credit union. You can run for the board of directors of the credit union. Well, mutual insurance companies are the same thing. They are companies that don't sell stock. They are owned essentially by their policy owners, and they're there for their policy owners. So there's a couple of companies out there that have the word mutual in their name. And I would put those, you know, when I'm shopping for a Medigap policy, after signing up for Medicare Parts A, B, and D, and sign up for the drug thing, that's Part D, I would then look for a company that has the word mutual in their name for the Medigap policy. And and I think you'll be very pleasantly surprised. Joan, I got to run, but thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. We'll be back with more talk media for the sane among us. Yes, there are some of us still out here. We'll be back. Stick around. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. 
Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. .edu slash podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is called Let the People Pick the President, The Case for Abolishing the Electoral College by Jesse Wegman. And I'm reading from the introduction. This is uh, page 20. But what exactly can we do about the Electoral College? People have been trying to answer that question for more than two centuries. Since the first proposed amendment to the Electoral College was introduced in Congress in 1797, there have been more than 700 attempts to reform or abolish it, more by far than any other provision of the Constitution. Only one has succeeded, the 12th Amendment, which was ratified in 1804 to fix a technical flaw in the College's design, but left it otherwise intact. In the late 1960s, an amendment abolishing the college and replacing it with a national popular vote passed the House of Representatives and came extraordinarily close in the Senate, but was blocked by a filibuster. At the time, 80% of the American public supported switching to the popular vote, as did President Richard Nixon and other top Republicans and Democrats. To some, this litany of failure speaks to itself. I think it's a waste of time to talk about changing the Electoral College, former President Jimmy Carter said in 2000. Carter had supported a national popular vote in the 60s and the 70s. I would predict that 200 years from now we'll still have the Electoral College, he said. Was President Carter right? Is it simply our fate as Americans to remain trapped by the historical quirks of a Constitution that is too easy to revere and too hard to change? Especially after the failed effort in the 60s when American politics were far less polarized to today and there was no simple partisan divide over the issue. It's clear that a constitutional amendment is not in the cards. But there may be another way. It's called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, an agreement among states to award all of their electors to the winner of the national popular vote rather than the winner of their statewide vote. The compact will take effect when it is joined by states representing a majority of electoral votes, 270, thus guaranteeing that the candidate who wins the most votes in the country becomes president. The ingenuity of the compact is that it doesn't touch the Constitution. Its target is the statewide winner-take-all rule, currently in use in 48 states. Maine and Nebraska are the exceptions. This rule is what makes presidents out of popular vote losers. It incentivizes presidential campaigns to ignore more than 100 million American voters living in non-competitive states, turning what should be a national electoral contest into a series of bitter, hyper-local brawls. It focuses nearly all campaign spending and policy proposals on a few so-called battleground states, where even a small shift in voting can lead to an electoral jackpot for one side or another. That familiar red and blue map we all obsess over every four years, it's nothing but a visual representation of state winner-take-all rules, with each state stamped Democratic or Republican as though that is its true identity, 
regardless of how many voters from the other party cast a ballot there. This is bad for democracy, and it should concern all Americans, no matter where they live or which political party they support. In contrast, when candidates know that all votes are equal and they need a majority of them to win, they're forced to seek the support of all Americans and craft policies that appeal to as many people as possible. The Popular Vote Compact was launched in 2006 and got its first member state, Maryland, the following year. As of October 2019, 15 states in the District of Columbia, together representing 196 electoral votes, had joined. 74 more, and the compact takes effect. So far, only Democratic majority states have joined the compact. And while the 2016 election dealt a significant setback to efforts to enlist Republican-led states, lawmakers of both parties around the country continue to support it, and Republican-led chambers have passed it in four states. Critics of the compact call it an end run around the Constitution. And it's true that the Constitution's framers never mentioned something like a popular vote compact. They also never mentioned the winner-take-all rule, but that didn't stop the majority of states from rapidly adopting it to benefit themselves. That's the whole point of the compact. The framers gave states near-total control over how to allocate their electors. The fact that the compact is an agreement among states also means that, unlike a constitutional amendment, which is effectively permanent, member states may back out if they later decide they don't want to be a part of it. Opponents of the popular vote argue that no matter how you might achieve it, it's not the way our country is built. As the popular saying goes, we're a republic, not a democracy. The Electoral College is one of the core Republican elements of the framers' constitutional design, like the Senate and the Supreme Court, which are there precisely to prevent majorities from running rampant. In other words, majority rule is not our only organizing principle and perhaps not even our most important. There are two problems, however, with this argument. The minor one is on the surface and involves terminology. The United States is both a republic and a representative democracy. The two terms describe the same thing, a government in which the people hold the ultimate power but elect representatives to make laws, policies, and other decisions on their behalf. The founders used the term republic to distinguish what they were building from a monarchy. For them, democracy generally referred to the direct variety as in ancient Athens or the New England town meeting, where the people literally make the laws themselves. But American politics at the national level has never been and never will be a direct democracy. So any distinction between the terms today is meaningless. As one political columnist put it, to say that the U.S. is a republic and not a democracy is like claiming to eat beef and pork, but not cows and pigs. The bigger problem with the saying is the implication that lies beneath it. The book, Let the People Pick the President, by Jesse Wegman. Terry in Gainesville, Florida. Hey, Terry, what's up? Hello, Tom. Uh, I'd like to talk about voter ID and the requirements of voter ID. And uh, mm-hmm. it's a little bit misinformation to say that voter ID, uh, the, the requirement for it disenfranchises some citizens. I'm sorry, but I'm a minority, and I still believe that you should prove who you are to solicit a ballot to vote. And that uh, I I wasn't disenfranchised. I went to the courthouse and I got my ID and I got my voter registration card and I voted. So what's so difficult about it? Why why does it disenfranchise minorities? Terry, when you when you first register to vote, you have to prove your citizenship. You put your signature down, and a signature is a biometric marker. It's it's harder to fake a signature than it is to get a fake ID. But that wasn't enough for the Republicans. They wanted to throw up barriers. My best friend lives in New York. He's lived there 70 years. 
And he hasn't had a driver's license in 30 years. He hasn't owned a car. He lives in New York. So what's he supposed to do, right? He, he used his passport and his rent slips when he registered to vote. Um, but what good is a voter ID law going to do other than keeping him from voting? Who uh, is trying well, to vote without Florida, ID? We it have just a doesn't state happen, ID. I don't drive, but I have a state ID. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, good on you. The, the point is that if you are poor and live in a city and use public transportation and don't drive, there's a lot of people in America who don't have driver's licenses. And the, if, you know, if it was a more general ID requirement, like when I registered to vote when I, when I was 17 in Michigan, you know, it was pretty straightforward. Thank you. Appreciate it. Dawn in Minneapolis. Hey, Dawn, what's on your mind today? Um, thanks for taking from my call. I have a question for you about national security. It's clear mm-hmm. that Trump and his, uh, the criminals in the White House are clearing the shells and pouring gas and everything on their way out. My question is, are there any provisions or any safeguards to prevent him from taking his knowledge and selling it for his own personal gain or spreading it around the world? Because we, he can, he can uh, shred files and wipe hard drives, but he still has all that information in his head. Is there any, yeah. any surveillance or any security regarding past presidents? I don't know. I would say, though, Dawn, that I think that he already has taken American secrets and used them for his advantage. In his first week in the White House, he invited Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, and Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, into the White House and shared with them top secret intelligence that outed an Israeli agent. I mean, you know, and we don't know if somebody died as a result of that or not. It, it was uh, kind of a one day story because it's just been one scandal after another. And then you look at uh, Erdogan. Erdogan came out and just publicly said he might nationalize the Trump properties, the Trump hotels. Now, Trump, it's a licensing deal, but nonetheless, that's about a $2 million a year cash flow for Donald Trump. And then Erdogan, within a week of saying that, Erdogan went to Donald Trump and said, I want you to pull out of Syria and, and stab the Kurds in the back because we don't like the Kurds. We're having problems with our Kurds in southern Turkey, and they're hanging out with the Kurds in northern Syria, which is the border, the Syrian-Turkey border. And we want to kill them all. And so Trump said, OK, cool, we'll pull out. And we did. And as we were pulling out, you know, some of our reporters were there and the Kurds were giving us the finger and yelling at us. And, and what happened? The, the Turks came in and they slaughtered people. They're slaughtering civilians. You've got a million civilians now in that region as winter is coming, living in tents and on open ground, women, children, families, hopeless, you know, in some cases starving as a result of Donald Trump trying to protect his two million dollar a year cash flow from his from his hotel his two Trump towers in Turkey. I mean, it's just, and that's just the stuff that we know about. That's just the stuff that's on the surface. That's the stuff that was on, you know, the front page of the New York Times. So, yeah, I don't know if we have a way of tracking that down. I'm guessing we do. And I sure hope that the people who do have the ability to do that are keeping good track of all this stuff, because it's a crime what's going on. Don, thank you for the call. Mark in Sauk City, Wisconsin. Hey, Mark, what's up? Hey, Tom, from a weekly, the radical rights uh, totalitarian methods in the campaign and since seriously threaten American freedom. The mutual confidence essential to free government is slowly being cut away by propaganda. Step by step, decent citizens come to tolerate attacks upon the loyalty of loyal men. And that's not from a recent uh, weekly. It's from a weekly that's not around anymore. This is from a January 26th. 1965 edition of Look Magazine with a picture <laughs> of Julie Andrews on the cover of it. Um, and right. it had four articles in there on Conspiracy USA about the, the radical right wing. 
I mean, there's our vegetables to chew on for the a little bit that you know we recognize as back yeah. in 1965. We don't recognize it today. And a little dessert. Well, keep in mind on. what happened in in in, in 65. Uh, you know what happened was was uh, you know that Johnson's Lyndon Johnson was sworn as as president, right? And that was the end of the Goldwater. This there was this huge right wing kind of you know last gasp of the first effort, which was the Goldwater uh, presidency, which went down in flames just you know two months before that. So back then it was perfectly acceptable to talk about right wing extremism. By 1970, you couldn't. I mean, you know, that's how that's how rapidly the backlash started. But, Mark, thank you. Was there a, a final point you wanted to make in about 10 seconds? Yeah, there, there was a, that Ian Fleming wrote James Bond. He also wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. You mentioned James Bond's treatment of women. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the way Ian Fleming wrote him. But Ian Fleming also wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which you know got made into the Disney movie of the same name. So just a little fun. This yeah, is thank the you, Tom Hartman Program. The Tom Hartman Program, the place where smart people get their news. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For the Tom Hartman Book Club today, it's Waking the Witch, Reflections on Women, Magic, and Power by Pam Grossman. This is from the introduction. Witches have always walked among us, populating societies and storyscapes across the globe for thousands of years. From Circe to Hermione, from Morgan Le Fay to Marie Laveau, the witch has long existed in the tales we tell about ladies with strange powers who can harm or heal. And although people of all genders have been considered witches, it's a word that is now usually associated with women. Throughout most of history, she has someone to fear, an uncanny other who threatens our safety or manipulates reality for her own mercurial purposes. She's a pariah a persona non grata, a boogie woman to defeat and discard. Although she's often been deemed a destructive entity, in actuality, a witchy woman has historically been far more susceptible to attack than an inflictor of violence herself. As with other terrifying outsiders, she occupies a paradoxical role in cultural consciousness as both vicious aggressor and vulnerable prey. Over the past 150 years or so, however, The witch has done another magic trick by turning from a fright into a figure of inspiration. She is now as likely to be the heroine of your favorite TV show as she is its villain. She might show up in the form of your Wiccan co-worker or the beloved musician who gives off a sorcerous vibe in videos or on stage. There's also a chance that she is you and that witch is an identity you've taken upon yourself for any number of reasons, heartfelt or flippant, public or private. Today, more women than ever are choosing the way of the witch, whether literally or symbolically. They're floating down catwalks and sidewalks in gauzy black clothing and adorning themselves with Pinterest-worthy pentagrams and crystals. They're filling up movie theaters to watch witchy films and gathering in back rooms and backyards to do rituals, consult tarot cards, and set life-altering intentions. They're marching in the streets with Hex the Patriarchy placards, and casting spells each month to try to constrain the commander-in-chief. Year after year, articles keep proclaiming it's the season of the witch as journalists try to wrap their heads around the mushrooming witch trend. And all of this begs the question, why? Why do witches matter? Why are they seemingly everywhere right now? What exactly are they? 
And why the hell won't they go away? I get asked such things over and over, and you would think that after a lifetime of studying and writing about witches, as well as hosting a witch-themed podcast and being a practitioner of witchcraft myself, my answers would be succinct. In fact, I find that the more I work with the witch, the more complex she becomes. Hers is a slippery spirit. Try to pin her down and she'll only recede further into the dark, deep wood. I do know this for sure, though. Show me your witches and I'll show you your feelings about women. The fact that the resurgence of feminism and the popularity of the witch are ascending at the same time is no coincidence. The two are reflections of each other. That said, this current witch wave is nothing new. I was a teen in the 1990s, the decade that brought us such pop culture as Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Charmed, and The Craft. Not to mention riot girls and third-wave feminists who taught me that female power could come in a variety of colors and sexualities. I learned that women could lead a revolution while wearing lipstick and combat boots, and sometimes even a cloak. But my own witchly awakening came at an even earlier age. Morganville, New Jersey, where I was raised, was a solidly suburban town, but it it retained enough natural land features back then to still feel a little bit scruffy in spots. We had a small patch of woods in our backyard that abutted a horse farm, and the two were separated by a wisp of running water that we could cross via a plank of wood. When we were little, my older sister Emily and I would sometimes venture to the other side where we could feed the horses, an act that still scares me to this day, and pick fistfuls of clover. But the majority of our time was spent on our side of the stream, threading ourselves through the thicket of trees that served as our personal forest. In one corner of the yard, a giant puddle would form whenever it rained, surrounded by a border of ferns. We called this spot our magical place. That it would vanish and then reappear only added to its mystery. It was a portal to the unknown. These woods are where I first remember doing magic, entering that state of deep play where imaginative action becomes reality. Most kids grow out of their magic phase. I grew further into mine. My grandma Trudy was a librarian at the West Long Branch Library, which meant I got to spend many a long afternoon lurking between the 001.9 and 135 Dewey Decimal sections, reading about Bigfoot and dream interpretation in Nostradamus. Waking the Witch by Pam Grossman. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.